Hello, everyone, and welcome. Thank you so much for coming to our event this evening. What She Said, Women Leaders in Post-Production and How They Rose Above the Rest. Before I introduced, introduce our hosts, I just especially want to thank Isabel Sederni for, in this year that our alliance was hyper-focused on our political agenda, Isabel really infused us with our original passion for post-production and our industry, what it is that we do, why we do it. She has curated some incredible podcasts. I hope all of you subscribe to the Post New York Alliance podcast. It's incredible. And she's um, curated this unbelievable panel of superstars and beauty queens. And these are women who I have long admired, and I'm thrilled to be in the same room as them, and can't wait to hear their stories. So thank you very much, Isabel, for all that you've done for the Post Alliance. And I want to thank our hosts, Dolby, for having us in their beautiful theater. I'd like to introduce you to Howard Neustadt, who is going to say a few words about the Dolby facility and give us a short presentation. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Um, again, my name's Howard Neustadt. Thank you, Jana. And um, so my role here at Dolby is that I support everything high dynamic range for Dolby. That's uh, on the vision side. So I all the post houses in New York I visit frequently and make sure that they're all working well for uh, color grading. Uh, so that's kind of my role here. Uh, thanks to uh, Post New York Alliance. You guys do an amazing job. Uh, appreciate all your work. Uh, makes us all here tonight, really does. Um, so just, uh, just a brief word about Dolby New York is that, you know, we support obviously all the mixing going on in New York and all things high dynamic range in New York and all the screenings that happen. We're always working behind the scenes and our facility here, we've got um, this screening room which is available for rent that does uh, Dolby Vision and Atmos. And then we have a smaller screening room upstairs which actually still projects film so if your, your delivery requirements still require a negative, you could have a check print screened upstairs off that negative just to make sure it's okay. We still do that. That's about it. Right. Thank you so much, Howard. Thank you, Dolby, for having us here. Post New York Alliance is proud to present all of these amazing, amazing women working here in New York on um, feature films, television shows, documentaries, short films, everything. And we're going to hear their stories and how they got to the top of their game. So um, to begin, why don't I go down the line and maybe just tell me your name and tell us tell us your name and maybe like just a tiny bit about maybe one of the last projects that you worked on that you were really excited about. So we so we're familiar with your role, like what you do, kind of as part of your part of your your job. I start down there. Okay, so that would be. She's like, I am. Okay, yes. Okay, uh, Eliza. I'm Eliza Paley, and I'm a sound editor, supervisor of various sorts. Uh, most recently, that I'm very proud of, I worked on a film called Wonderstruck, which is going to Cannes, and I directed by Todd Haynes. Directed by Todd Haynes. Um, and I was the dialogue ADR supervisor on that. 
So just tell us, like, if, if you can, in a nutshell, what that is, what, what you do with, as an what ADR. What do I do as an ADR dialer? Um, well, in that role, I'm cut, in this particular case, I cut all the dialogue and I did all the ADR, um, but... Additional can, dialogue recording. I'm sure everybody uh, knows that, but just so oh, we sorry. say it out loud. Yeah, additional... Um, automated, I think it's oh, automated, automated sorry. dialogue recording. So um, that involved, uh, you know, recording replacement dialogue from principal actors as well as group ac uh, actors, getting those in, um, and uh, working with Todd is always an honor and a pleasure. Um, he's an incredibly gifted director and cares deeply about every aspect of the film. Sound is no exception. I don't know if that's, is that enough? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I'm, <laughs> that I'm learning more about with ADR and sound editing, and, and you're a, a sound editor, so you're doing more than just dialogue on several projects, uh, right, and you have, yeah. um, is that you're often creating a soundscape for, for, that creates the world of the film, and like the cinematographer is creating the, the visual landscape, you're creating a sound landscape out of whole cloth. So Correct. you might yeah. be creating the world of the film that is invisible, but is the ambiance that makes us believe that we are there, that we are in a taxi in Tokyo or underwater or, you know, that kind of thing. So I will, hopefully we'll hear more about that. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Wendy, Blackstone composer. That would be okay, it. I'm done. <laughs> um, I, I work very hard writing the music of a film. So along with your work, I think we are part of this sonic uh, design of a film. Uh, I recently finished four films in a row, so it's amazing that I can speak. <laughs> Actually, it's really a lot of work, as I'm sure we all know so well. Um, two of them were at Tribeca. I'm very proud of both of them. Uh, what were they? Warning: This pill may kill. This drug may kill you, which is now on HBO demand. It's one of their strong uh, movies right now, and uh, just premiered last week. That was at Tribeca, and um, the other one is the Rape Kit film, mm -hmm. which is uh, what was the latest title on that? Somebody help me. Oh, I Am Evidence, mm. great title, and a really strong film. So those were amazing, very tough films, two documentaries, and uh, we also premiered a fiction film that not only did I compose the music for, but I also produced, uh, that was shot in Italy, called Boston Florence. Um, and so that's some of my latest work. And you've worked with um, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky on um a couple of films. One I think we've probably all heard of, which is Paradise Lost, and th that's the purgatory, the, the kind of yes. co revisiting the characters. Yes, we've done about a dozen films together uh, <coughs> with Joe very close over the, I, from his very first film when he used to work at the Maisels, uh, Taxi Driver Stories, which is really hilariously funny. I keep reminding Joe about his humor because he does really very strong, hard-hitting films. Blair Witch too. Sorry? Did you do Blair Witch? Too? No, unfortunately, I didn't. Um, also, Alison Elwood directed and produced a film uh, with Jigsaw called American Jihad, and that's also on Showtime right now. So, very hard-hitting films at the moment. 
Looking for a comedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Susan Lazarus. I am a post-production supervisor and a producer. I, the last film I post-produced was uh, Jim Jarmusch's film Patterson, um, which is now on Netflix, or now on Amazon, excuse me. And but premiered at Cannes, I think, but right? But it premiered at Cannes, and it was theatrically acclaimed. The reviews, I keep getting Google alerts every other day with a wonderful review of that film. Very, very, very proud of that film. Mm -hmm. And I was the co-producer of Sophie and the Rising Sun, which uh, Maggie Greenwald directed. And I'm currently teaching at the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, post-production. You've worked with um, <coughs> Jim Jarmusch on a few films. Yes, his, yeah. his, last, his last three, Only Lovers Left Alive and The Limits of Control. Uh, but you've, I mean, you've worked with a lot of people in, in New York, as Eliza, you have. I mean, we have some of your credits here, but you, I think you started. I've worked with, with uh, Mayor Nair, Spike Lee. Um, I, I was an Bennett apprentice Miller. editor on uh, Marty Scorsese's The King of Comedy. I worked on Reds. <laughs> um, I worked with uh, several people on this panel. I worked my my uh, very first feature um, as a post-production supervisor was uh, Zelly and Me. And, oh, really? and uh, Susanna was the music editor, and Cindy Kaplan Rooney was the editor, who's here tonight. Um, but that was the first feature that I did as a post-supervisor. I had done yeah. series and documentary before that. Well, I just heard a story told by Alan Heim and Mark Laub working on Network, and that was before there were things such as post-production supervisors. So your, th your role is really, really valuable, and maybe you'll help us understand how you helped create it, you know? Yes, thanks. Yeah. And I do want to say I worked with Chrissy on Prime, Prime. Ben Younger with Meryl Streep. And Nancy, you worked on the door and the floor, right? Mm -hmm. With the, we worked together on the door and the floor, and with Wendy, you worked on uh, Apache Eight, which was a documentary about an all-woman firefighting team on the Apache Reservation. Awesome. Um, so I did not get a chance to work with Eliza <laughs> yet. <There's> still time. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy Allen, music editor. That would be you. Yes, that's me. That's me. I'm, um, <clears throat> I just finished a, a film directed by Dee Reese, who, whose first film, Pariah, uh, was very <coughs> beautifully received. And, and we worked together for the first time on Bessie, and she just finished a very small feature called Mudbound. That was which, at Sundance. That, which went to Sundance um, and was very well received and is picked up. And you all will see it in theaters for a very short period of time. And then it's going to Netflix, I believe. Great. Um, and I'm currently working on Darren Aronofsky's new project, which will... Called Mother. Yes. Exclamation point. Exclamation point. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I am literally here because of the woman sitting next to me, Susanna Parrish, from whom I learned everything about this craft. And I snatched her. I snatched her when she was young and innocent. <laughs> and um, taught me everything about this business and also a lot of things about being a better person. So she's, she's, she's my mentor and my champion. I couldn't. Sorry. It's the sound panel. Exactly. You should forget about that. Maybe, yeah. Well, let me.
we need them? Yeah, we do just we, so that we can okay. uh, record into it. Uh, my name is Susanna Perich. I'm also a music <laughs> editor, and, uh, like Nancy. <laughs> and um, I uh, just today finished a film that's also going to Cannes. Uh, it's called um, According to a uh, True Story that Roman Polanski directed. And uh, I, um, I also, um, I work a lot on documentaries and short films. I like to uh, uh, delve into different um, areas. And uh, I love young directors and uh, young artists. I also teach. I teach in Zagreb. That's where I'm from. And um, at the film school, and I teach at NYU. And, uh, and you, I mean, you started out working with, like, I mean, you've worked with people like Roman Kolansky f on several of their films, yes, Ghostwriter. Yes, and yes, I was very lucky. And Woody Allen and Martin yes. Scorsese and Jonathan Demme and Bob Altman. And Jonathan Demme gave <coughs> me my, that's why I'm here. Jonathan gave me you my break. start. On, and then, oh, and everything since 30 years ago. Oh, God. And we all miss him. Yeah. Yeah. But he, you started out with him on, is it Something, Something Wild? Wild. Mm -hmm. That was my first film. And you, and the, the, and you worked with him on his last Everything. Feature. Yeah. Everything, including documentaries and. The Neil Young. Yeah, yeah. But I noticed that you work a lot with new directors, like J.C. Chandor and. Yes, J.C. Chandor and Derek, and Derek Cienfrance. And uh, I love, uh, I think when you, I think that, um, uh, uh, staying in the in the field uh, for such a long time as I have, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's the most exciting is to be able to keep up with the culture and uh, and I think that young directors and young artists are curious, adventurous, and um, their films are usually not as expensive as the bigger films, so there is not as much. I mean, there's always a risk, but they're more free to uh, explore. And that's what I like to do very much. And the fact that they, they and it's also very uh, fulfilling to me because they come for, with a reason. They want to learn. And uh, I love to give. And so it's, uh, it's been a really wonderful way of staying uh, current. Mm. And that's what uh, keeps uh, because every film and, uh, and 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 also I love to work with different in different cultures because you learn so much about the approach to uh, to filmmaking to your own work. It just opens your eyes to a different um, um, uh, way of seeing. That's wonderful. Yeah. Cool. More on that. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Bowden. Um, picture editor. I'm a picture editor. Um, <laughs> and I've been one for a long time. And I couldn't answer the question before because I'm in the middle of doing dailies and I just don't remember that I did anything before <laughs> the, these dailies that I'm cutting right now. Um, so currently I am doing the, um, the second season of a television um, show, I guess, called The Girlfriend Experience, which is this very interesting experiment in having writer-directors do their, take the whole thing. So it's, um, Steven Soderbergh is the executive producer and he has he's let these two di writer-directors kind of run with their shows. 
And last season, these two, um, Amy Simons and Lodge Kerrigan, who I work for, um, do, they wrote these shows together and then they directed them separately. And this year, they're doing totally different storylines and totally different, um, like seven episodes apiece. And it's an incredible experience for me. It's been really it, very interesting to have. There's no, nobody's overseeing us at all. We're just <laughs> getting to both, it. Both of them, like no, I'm just doing Lodge's I, I episodes, see, but, um, and he's a director I have worked for before. So, uh, and I'm in the midst of it and we're trying to do, he's, do, he's doing something very bold and that's really exciting, so. And I, I think the, <laughs> the man who's working on your dailies is right here, Loic Delon. Oh, you're, you're on the other side. <laughs> and how are, are you, they're here in New York? Um, they're shooting in New Mexico. Right. But they finished, they're, I hear. They're, yeah, they're finishing, uh, yeah, actually, you're right. They just finished yeah. uh, today. So I'm getting tomorrow. Tomorrow I'm getting Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm sure they're having a great time, too. It's an incredible yeah. opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've worked in... <coughs> but you've worked um, in New York for a while. You've worked yes, with De Palma... Yes. I started, um, I came out of the gate. Why don't we start with your, your Genesis story? And then we'll really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, it was New York. It was the in? 80s. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about the scene. Tell us no, about I, the, I mean, the, community you were part of. The, the, the wonderful thing about my career is that I've been able to stay in New York and pretty much do the kind of, the movies I like watching and the, you know, and projects uh, with people who I really respect. And um, it started, I really got my break in a way that unfortunately isn't available anymore, which is that I was an assistant on film and I was in the room with the editor and the director all the time. Because you were cutting and on film. <coughs> yeah. And you were diving into the, the director needed. I mean, the editor needed me to be there to because it was a two-person operation cutting mm -hmm. on film. Who was the editor? Um, Jerry Greenberg was the, Jerry the Greenberg first one. Jerry Greenberg, who did uh, the French Tony Polanski. And, um, and that, I mean, that's how I got the De Palma film, because I was in the room with them. And I got to learn everything. I mean, not only just the process that the editor was going through, because they editors like to talk about their, you know, what makes them make this decision, but also the interaction with the directors. Mm -hmm. And so that got me gigs from those directors, which... Um, and that was Carlito's way. Yeah, because I was there. <laughs> um, and that... Jerry Greenberg's a good reference. But... <laughs> <It> certainly is. <laughs> but it was... Um, well, it was really, I mean... You know, he did hire other assistants of Jerry's, like Bill Pankow and mm -hmm. um, many other people. But it's, um, it was, an, you know, it was a really, it was a great way to start because there, I knew what, um, I, to have the confidence of the director from, and knowing what their, what they wanted and being mentored, and I, it wasn't being mentored so much as that I would have this opportunity to learn mm -hmm. by watching these editors cut. And um, 
and that's and that's why people can't get a start like that anymore. I understand that, but uh, I try now to as much as possible to include my ins my assistant. The rooms are usually too small, and there usually isn't a reason to bring them in when you're with the director, but to include them as much as possible mm -hmm. because I don't know how else you would learn that. Right. Um, so. If anything from this, what I really encourage people to do is to pass that on as yeah. much as, as you can. I'm sure that's true with sound yes. and, every, you know, you two work exactly. together in a way that you, you yes. don't work with those people exactly. anymore. And um, so it's a mystery to me how anybody, <laughs> how you get it, but. What uh, do you think you learned uh, about the dynamic of working between a director and an editor? That you carried forward that was really... That I can talk about? That you can talk <laughs> about. Um, no, everything. And it's about what... Wanted to shut up, probably, is a good thing. But also just that what that give and take is like. And, um, and yeah, when you say things and when you don't, and how the, the, po the political dynamic. But I think it's mostly um watching how these ideas get generated and how people how you hear one thing of what the director may be wanting and then how the editor can interpret that in a way that reflects their taste as well so um that was that's how i got started and i'm very grateful for it and um it really prepared me and I love doing it, and um, I got to stay in New York and cut for the last 25 years, so I'm very grateful for that beginning. Yeah. And De Palma's got another film coming out. I wouldn't know, I haven't worked with him in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but good for him. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Susanna, you started out as a pianist. Well, that was such a long time ago. <laughs> but, but there's uh, a musicality, I think, at to, the, there to is, your no, work. There is. It's, it's interesting how an event in your childhood can actually follow you your whole <laughs> life. And uh, all, you, all you want to do is forget about it. <laughs> but I, I, had a, I, was, um, I, was, uh, I studied um, music alongside my grammar school and high school. And I was being groomed as a pianist and uh, more by my parents than by myself <laughs> but uh, but the teachers thought I had some talent and I would perform and I was uh, um, I um, uh, in this big uh, one performance I was 14 years old um, I uh, was chosen to be one of the students representing that generation and I came on the stage and I blanked out I didn't remember I was playing these two pieces by Schumann and I forgot but I um, went back to the beginning and three times and finally got to improvise a little and had tears in my eyes and critics said that they afterwards they had never heard Schumann played so wildly because I just wanted to get through it. But I got through it. But that was the end. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the end of that. Uh, it was such a big shock that I wasn't able to get over it and I was too young to understand that maybe I should. But in any case, I never thought that music was going to come back into my life. I didn't follow that path afterwards. I was, I'm from Croatia, and I studied English and Italian. I've always loved film. And then uh, I moved to this country to study film after I, after I got a degree uh, in, in Croatia. And, um, <coughs> and then my start was uh, I, uh, 
I wanted to, uh, as all of our students, once we graduated, we wanted to start working in something. So I got a job as a production assistant on a set of a film. This was in Chicago. And um, it's really the hardest job that one can ever imagine. <laughs> but I had a lot of passion because I had a job. Arthur Penn was the director. It was really an incredibly interesting. That was Penn and Teller Get Killed. No, no, oh. much, much before oh, that. Oh, oh. There was Four Friends. Oh. It was shot in Chicago. And um, anyway, we were, I, know, I was exhausted, and, but loved it. And, and every day around lunchtime, when we were able to kind of relax for a moment, there was this guy that would walk in, always in such a relaxed, good mood, and just sit down, have lunch with us, and then he would disappear. And I wondered who he was. And then I found out. He was a music editor. <laughs> 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 I want his job. job. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I ended up in post-production in New York, I followed him around. And, <laughs> and then his assistant became a music editor, hired me as an assistant, and that was it. That was and I got it. And, uh, and then Jonathan Demi, I, when I was, you know, when you're an assistant, one thing that is very difficult is when do you now become, right. when do you decide who, the editor is not going to push you because they love you too much and they need you too much, right? So you have to yourself decide, we know that together, <laughs> when is the time to go? Mm. And then I decided this was the, the time, but how do you convince somebody else that that's the time? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I knocked, uh, it was, there were two films at the time, uh, this was at Sound One, and two films that were in post-production just about that moment when they needed a music editor. And we both have a very close friend, Camila Toniolo, also a fantastic uh, picture editor. And she was the assistant editor on Something Wild. And she gave me that push. And she said, you go there and you knock on the door. And I did. I don't, I don't even know now how I right. got the courage, but I did. And, uh, and, um, and met Jonathan <coughs> Demi and Craig McKay. and. Uh, I got the job, and it was an, it was a feast. It was a film that had uh, songs throughout. It's a, I don't know if, if you if you know the film, but it's really a, a, a very musically a very exciting uh, film that used songs as a score. So that was a, a, an incredible learning experience, um, and uh, there it was. And you helped Nancy. And then I met Nancy. I gave a I gave a talk at uh, here. I'll introduce you now. So, <laughs> I gave a talk at NYU where Nancy was studying, and I and and uh, I noticed this such a beautiful face in the back of the room. But with those I curious, always you know, like whatever I said, she would just spark up and <laughs> and listen. You know, when you it's a wonderful feeling when you are able to um, engage someone. So I noticed her right away, and then um, Nancy came, uh, Nancy uh, graduated, and then entered into the post-production of the, uh, in sound, and I was just about, uh, Nick, an, an assistant who I was working with for, before that, for five years or six, he was ready to go, and, um, and I asked Nancy to come and join me, just like that. She was like, yes. Yes. She said, yes, I will. I mean, it was, it, uh, I think I blew out my, that's okay. I, it was, um, I remember that day. So, so. Yeah, we I, do, actually, just so, so we can get you recorded. What? Just make sure you're. Yeah.
um, I remember this day really well. So this class at NYU that you came to, it was, I, I, I had a very similar experience to Susanna where I was being trained as, well, not trained, I was playing classical piano at a very suburban classical piano education. And you, you do one of two things, you do performance or you do composition, and that was never gonna happen, the composition, and the uh -huh. performance was never gonna, and I never liked it. And I had a, a big performance in mm -hmm. front of the, and I just, that was it, never again. I was 17 and I walked off the stage. I said, never, never, never again. And in a fit of rebellion, and, and looking back on it, anybody who had any sense of music and who was in a fit of rebellion would have come to New York and gone into a punk rock band. I went to college and studied business instead, so <laughs> I really showed That's them. That's kind of punk rock. I gave the corporate world a try for a few years, and then that, that was like, see ya. So, and I went back to NYU, and I went back to my music, and I was, I thought I wanted to produce mm -hmm. until I was in this class where Susanna showed up with, can I tell the film? Yes. So Su Susanna showed up with a clip from the film Wolf that Mike Nichols directed with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer, and Ennio Morricone had done the score. And she wanted to show the ending. She showed the ending the way that Ennio scored it, and then she showed the ending the way that Ennio revised the score to address Mike's notes. And it was, uh, it was one of those moments in my life, and they, there have not been many, but it was where this literal, this tuning fork literally went off inside, and I said, that's it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I, that <coughs> was, it just was a northern pull. It was, and you don't remember this, but I called <coughs> you at, toward the end of that semester, okay. and I called Sybil yeah. at the front desk of Sound <laughs> One, yeah. and she said, Sybil knew who, where everybody was every second of the day. We never figured out how she did it, but she always <laughs> did. And I said, I'm calling to speak to Susanna Parrish, please. And she said, Susanna's in a mix, but I'll have her call you back. And I said, okay. And you did, you called me back. Okay. And how can I yeah, help I you? And I said, I said, you came and you spoke to the, my class and I want, I'll do anything for you. I'll be your intern, whatever. And you were very lovely and you said, that, in, that really doesn't work. It's too small of a department. I don't really get the opportunity to have interns. When I do get to work with somebody, there's an assistant I always work with. But I encourage you to try to get on a sound crew because they usually have, they have, more need for interns and there are more opportunities. Because there's a, it, there are bigger departments. There are bigger so. departments, that's exactly right. And you said, go and understand the process. Mm -hmm. Go and learn the process. Go and understand how a cutting room works. What it is, what, what is a pitcher turnover? What are, you know, all of, and that's what I did. And I went and I worked with Eliza at Planet 10 and I was Nick's assistant on Nil by Mouth. It was amazing, yeah. it was absolutely incredible. And um, you even came out to the mix. I did, I did, and I remember, I remember the director calling his son and saying, "Buzz Lightyear is on his way to you." It was, there was, <laughs> so, and I did a couple more film jobs, and I was working on deconstructing Harry that Bob Hine was supervising, mm -hmm. and you and I had run into each other yes. a few times in the hallway, and you knew that you were going to be starting. Right. The first film I did on music, in music, was Kundun that Philip Glass scored oh with Martin Scorsese. And Susanna calls me and she says, I can't do your accent. She says, Nancy. <laughs> try, try. She says, Nancy. <laughs> I have a little film that's starting in July. I've spoken to Bob and he said it's fine. And, and I, 
and she said, if you don't, this is what I think would make sense for our schedule. And if you don't mind, may I speak to the producer for you? And I, of course, of course. And I, I you know, I hung up the phone and I, I just, you know, I didn't even tell my husband because I thought this could fall apart and I just, I don't want to be disappointed. And, um, and, it, uh, and, and, and that was that was the first film that we worked on, yeah. and my favorite story from Kundun, <laughs> because that was a real challenge. I mean, yes, it was. That was that Major was about that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, but my favorite, <laughs> my favorite story about that is toward the end, you were running to the stage, and we'd have a very, very, very <laughs> grueling day. It was just one of those days. It was a three-dimensional, like storm. It was crazy, and you're running out of the stage. You're always chipper. And you turned around you behind me and you said, I promise they're not all like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, the, and, the, and the rest, well and truly, is history. Yeah. I, and Susanna is the one who told me when to leave. You, you pushed yes, me. Every time this. there was an opportunity to do a little film, you pushed me to do it and you always welcomed me back which is extraordinary. It's not only extraordinary that I got to have the experience that you had, Chrissy, watching Susanna in the room with these directors mm -hmm. and the composers and on the stage, you know, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with these 800-pound gor gorillas and, you know, fighting for the score and fighting for the mix and doing everything mm -hmm. that you do so beautifully. I wouldn't know how to do that if I hadn't seen you do it and with such grace. And it, the big thing is the listening because you showed me how how to listen and entertain new ideas with an open heart. Which is so key to a collaborative process. So, there you go. That's my story. I want to come back to the fighting the 800 pound gorillas later. That's important. I had a very circuitous route um, I started as a photographer, and um, and I met a, at, at college. I met a, I saw the work of Ed Emshuler, who was an experimental filmmaker, um, and I fell in love with his in-camera camera work and multi layers, and uh, and I thought that was very cool. And then I had the opportunity to meet him, and I asked him if I could apprentice with him um, over a summer, and he was working on a film, and. Uh, but I ended up being assistant camera, assistant sound, assistant director, grip, and actor <laughs> on, the, on the film where I had no act, acting skill and I was very, very shy and it was, and it was an improvisational script. So it was, it was a crazy, crazy thing and um, the film ended up at New Directors and in, at the Whitney. Um, so uh, it's called Choice, Chance, Woman, Dance, and it was a feminist film made by a man in, who uh, wanted to make a film about three women. Um, but uh, he went on to video after that, and I, I also helped, he, he was one of the founders of the new video art movement, and I did some multimedia work with him as well. But I still wanted to be a photographer. I was working at the Guggenheim as an art photographer, and uh, they would pay for classes. So I took a video produ production class and I, I, want, I was in a group of people including Ellen Hovde, 
who, who worked for the Maisels, and she wanted to go from editing to directing. And I was shooting camera, she was directing, and um, I was learning, uh, learning about camera and wanting to go into that direction. She had a, a salon on Sundays and said, why don't you come to my salon? All these filmmakers will be there and you'll meet maybe Claudia Weil and Judy Irola who were making a film, the all-woman crew in China, and you know, maybe you could, you know, I wanted to be a woman cinematographer. Well, I, I got to meet a lot of wonderful people, um, but in cinematography, I, I couldn't get arrested. I was trying to, to do it without film school. I was trying to just be an apprentice, and I wanted to go learn how to fix equipment figuring if I was handy and knew how to fix the camera, they would hire me and uh, I would be indispensable. But the, the camera rental places wouldn't, wouldn't hire a woman at, at that point. Wow. Um, and that was before a lot of the diversity initiatives that came, came up. Um, so I put a sign up at AIVF, which was just starting. Ed M. Schwiller was on the board and he recommended, yeah, put a, put a sign up saying you want an apprentice. And uh, Maxie Cohen saw that sign and said, you want to learn how to sync dailies? I'm doing a, a documentary. We got all the footage shot. I said, sure, I'll learn how to sync dailies. So I, I sunk dailies. Uh, fortunately, there was an editor on the project named Marion Kraft, who was a union editor um, who had worked with Marcel Ophuls on, uh, on um, uh, Memories of Injustice. Um, she taught me Cinetabs, she taught me the organization, the editing rooms. Um, and then the sound editor came on, Josh Waletsky, and he taught me sound editing. I worked with him. Um, and then he was putting together a feature, a documentary film based on photographs, and he knew I was a photographer. So he, we wrote an NEH grant together where I directed the shooting of the stills, and because uh, it was based on a photographic exhibition. We got the NEH grant, um, and then he was so busy directing and editing and producing, and he asked me to be his co a, a producer on the film as with him as well. So I was producer and a sound editor on that film. And when we ran out of money on that film, Lee Dichter was our mixer, and he got to mix like one or two reels. And then we ran out of money, so we made money as sound editors. I worked on uh, The War at Home at that time, which was an Academy Award-nominated documentary. I got to be sound editor, music, and dialogue. Um, so I was getting training, and then we got to finish Image Before My Eyes, um, which was out, out theatrically distributed. And then I was so broke, and I figured my next step would be get into features and learn how feature film editing is done and try to get steady work in sound. So I got hired on Reds and- That was um, a nice long gig. And <laughs> it, it, I was like the second apprent sound apprentice. I got to work for almost a year and Cindy Kaplan-Rooney was the assistant editor to Dee Dee Allen. Um, and I said, uh, I came in and I said, oh, and they, they gave me a little test, you know, how do you do Foley's, how do you, you know, and, I, and I, I, I had been making, you know, we had been doing our own Foley's where you do things, you figure out the rhythm, you do a click track of your own kind. I, I had none of the feature skills, but I, had, I knew all the processes and I knew the steps in making a film. 
but they said, all right, you're a girl, you'll be the apprentice sound editor. So I, I did that, and I, but because Reds had, ultimately, at its zenith, it had 10 picture editors and 10 sound editors. Craig McKay said the total was 65. 65. In editorial. Editors. No, no. 65 on the editorial. 65 editors. No, not 65 picture editors, yeah. I mean, but 65 in the, yeah. oh, in in the, the post. Yeah. 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 And all it was Dee Allen, wasn't it? Yeah. Dee Allen and Craig McKay. It was Dee Dee Allen and Craig McKay and Angelo Corral. Right. And, um, and David Ray and Jerry Greenberg and who else? Uh, a lot of other, um, and then in sound we had Richie Sorrentioni and we had Maurice Schell, um, and um, Ray Hubley was an assistant editor. Peter Odebashian was an assistant editor. David Siegel was an apprentice editor, and um, at any rate, I learned ADR preparation, Foley preparation, music preparation. I did streamers for the scoring sessions. And the uh, ADR and Foley's, I built the sound effects library. Um, and uh, was the last sound person standing, I think, when the film finished. We did, we did, we mixed, we marked up the tracks every Friday night. We would do a temp mix. Um, at one in the morning, we'd be, we would be uh, finishing the temp mix and marking it up before we could go home so that Dee Dee would be able to start cutting with the mixed tracks. Um, <laughs> and and it, it, it was it was boot camp. I you know it, it definitely was boot camp. Um, but that was somehow that led to post production supervising. So so I I learned I I learned a lot, you know I had I, lo I had a lot of skills and and then I uh, I worked on and I was also working I, I think after that I. I, well, I worked on the King of Comedy in the picture department, as uh, which was which was fun, <laughs> and um, but I was always going back and forth into the documentary world, and also I was trying to develop projects that I wanted to see made. I, w I wanted to produce things. I was writing grants, and I joined forces with a producer and writer team, and we spent a, a couple of years with six projects that we were trying to get off the ground. And um, because of Image Before My Eyes, Barbara Streisand came to our, uh, who had come to our cutting room to do research for Yentl. And because of my connection with her, I brought one of these projects to Barbara Streisand and Sis Corman and Warner Brothers. They bought it and they were going to make that film. And we had five other films, one of which I was trying to do in Northern Ireland a Northern Ireland project with Christopher Reeve. Everything kept falling apart and we had no track record. And um, so I kept going back into, into uh, the editing room to, to keep working. But at, at one point I realized that I had, oh, and then I, I was working on a Weinstein series called The Gnomes. Um, we were doing an English language version of a Spanish animation. It was an adorable show. Uh, it was all do done in Montreal, and I was working with Harvey Weinstein incredibly closely, and um, it was quite an experience. <laughs> um, but he was so great with casting these, the, the people who would be doing the, uh, the, the work. But I, I got pregnant on that film, and 
on that series. And then I figured, and when that was finished, I figured I was never going to get a job again. Um, but nobody would hire me. How could I work the long hours? It would be over. Um, but I got a call to, when Simon was 12 weeks old, to work on Zelly and me. And that was, uh, I said, look, I've got this baby. Can I have flexible hours? Um, it was a female director, Tina Rathborn, female editor, female co one of the producers, Sue Jett, was, was a woman. And they said, yeah, well, let's see if it works, you know, as long as we can find you and you're not going to take that much money because you're going to cut your rate because your hours aren't going to be that long. <laughs> so um, it, I was at Sound One. I had an office at Sound One right next to the editing room. And, uh, and I brought him sometimes. So... Uh, hmm. That, that was a success. It, it worked out. It worked out. And one thing, and then I decided to, to, you know, I had been talking to other producers saying, don't you need someone who, who is like a line producer for the editing of the film? I uh, had gone to Michael Nozick. I went out to the studios and I talked to Universal and Warners and, and Sony, or it was, was it Sony then? Um, Columbia. Uh, to say, if you ever have a film in New York, I have some experience in cutting room, I have experience in producing, I can oversee the film for you. Um, and they said, good to know. We hate working in New York, but good to know. And uh, but occasionally, uh, finally I got that call and, um, and my Michael Nozick called me to work on Mississippi Masala. And then I got called to work on Tim Robbins' film, Bob Roberts. And, um, and, through un and Universal called one day and said, uh, would you like to meet the guy who did my left foot and uh, in the name of the father? So that... Uh, so off. I, I, I had but learned yeah, all, but different, were, all different budget the ranges. the position of post-production supervisor was being invented. From I don't need. think it existed in New York at that time. Because all the editing rooms that I had ever seen that were run by the editors and the assistant editors. So, um, but yes, as I, it started happening around then. As films had more previews, they needed somebody who could do the long-range planning, the thinking, um, because the editors, who were very capable of dealing with the labs, you know, were so busy editing and making changes, there was no longer a locked picture where you finish the picture and then you moved into sound and you moved into the lab. All, everything was happening simultaneously. So you really needed another producerial kind of head, which is what a, a post-production supervisor is. But the producers don't realize that they even need them. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a great story too about how uh, all female crew was able to kind of modify their needs to bring you in and make everything possible, I mean, to bring that kind of new level of collaboration possible. Because you're obviously really helpful. It, it, was, it was wonderful, the leap of faith on their, on their part, but we had a, a program, I think, at New York Women in Film after the film was finished. And I remember Sujet, the producer, saying, yeah, you know, we thought, we, we said she was gonna work part-time, but she ended up working more than part-time, you know, if we, we could find her at any time. It was basically, I was so guilty for not being there all the time that I would work all the time, <laughs> you know, wherever I was, so. 
always. They they really got a good deal, and yeah. I, and and I had fun. Good. <laughs> Wendy, tell us a little bit about how you got started. I think I'll just hit on the key points because yeah. uh, it's a constellation, I think, of moments for each of us in the audience and here on this panel. What happens in your life? What what connections happen that seem almost magical that you would never have imagined would happen occurring and that you follow those steps where they lead, you follow your instincts and you continue this trajectory with a lot of intuition but a lot of hard work um, and luck. I don't know, it's an amazing combination. For me, it started when I was young um, at Brooklyn Conservatory of Music uh, as a music composition uh, student. A magic night in February where there were three bands playing, Latin American bands, and I ended up meeting these people that I would be playing music with for a long time and meet this guy who was going to be scoring his first documentary score. And I think he thought I was cute and he heard me play uh, and he knew I was, I had studied something that he hadn't done. Her name, his name was Bernardo. And anyway, he said, he called me up shortly after this uh, event and said, would you like to come to New Jersey? I'm scoring this documentary. I said, of course, it sounds amazing. Uh, the only thing I would say before that is ever since I was a tiny person, I was one of these people who would draw every dream who would write poetry and started composing at the age of 12 before I knew what that was. A lot of us are born with the desire to create and understand that it's one of the most extraordinary things we can do. Uh, for me, visuals and music and people are everything in life. I like Susanna, I speak four languages, I don't know, music five, so, uh, a desire to make all those connections seemingly appeared when someone showed me that there was this uh, job that I could help with that without knowing absolutely anything because in the 80s, it wasn't as prevalent that there would be film scoring. I didn't ever hear about Berkeley School of Music. You know, um, no, no one in my family had gone to college. I was the first one who brought myself to college and paid for it, and uh, and that night, and going and taking that job on, I discovered very naturally, I didn't know I could write melodies that would move people. This this opportunity gave me that chance. It was, it was a political documentary, Aquí se habla español, about what we need now, communities that are from different backgrounds who actually want to say we have a right to be here. And I, being a person who loves different cultures and feel I grow from them and I'm exponentially who I am because I embrace them, felt very open about creating what I would find out was film scoring. You know, everybody throughout history of humanity has invented things. Well, we can too. Uh, in school, I didn't ever study uh, film scoring, and maybe I don't know what I'm doing, but after 130 films, they're still giving me the opportunity because I love passionately this opportunity that I can't believe people give me to give me this tabla rasa, 
unless there's a great temp score put in for me to follow, um, uh, that I can, out of nowhere, create music that will support what the director's vision and what will help the, the film, whether it's fiction or, or nonfiction, be felt more emphatically by, by the audience. And so it was just an extraordinary opportunity that would open and change the rest of my life. Um, then once you get a taste of that this is out there, something it's like falling in love. If you fall in love passionately, you're not going to let that person go. I didn't let this thing go because it was heaven sent, I think, or whatever you believe in. Uh, things like that can't happen without something magical. I just can't believe that. But anyway, so because of the passion that I felt and brought to every project I worked on, I just started to figure out ways, always thinking out of the box because I didn't even know there was a box. You know, like how can I meet more people who are doing this amazing thing? And uh, combining ideas, visuals, and music, where? So I figured out different ways to meet people. And I traveled all around the world too, either for inspiration or to meet more people. Of course I did go to California, because why not? I wanted to see the ocean. I didn't know we had one here. <laughs> I was from the Bronx, you know, I had Orchard, what was it called? Orchard City, yeah, Orchard Beach. Well, not really a, a, this ocean. But anyway, in LA, when I went, I had already figured out by myself uh, how to score about a couple of dozen films. Probably didn't hurt that a couple of them had been nominated for Oscars. Those were always nice things that can happen that people will say, oh, maybe they're good, you know. You always need those kinds of things if you can get that. Um, so I went out to there and then magically, they were not uh, thinking that they were in 1990 or thereabouts, maybe a few years before, that uh, that there was a young woman coming from New York with a pile of scores that she had already done. They were, some of them, very quirky and weird because I like to have fun and be different and feel like maybe Duchamp or somebody wild that we've invented a lot of these things already and they all sound similar. Can we do something new? So maybe some of my things attracted people like David Franco when I did Dear Diary or um, a myriad of people who were open to something that sounded different. I was already experimenting with sounds and stuff. So somebody walked me into creative artists out of the goodness of their heart of seeing a young woman who had on her own figured out all these things. And don't you know, this um, amazing agent said, you know, we don't, we've never had a film composer who's a female. Can we sign you? And, you know, you could have just told me. I, I, it was unbelievable. Everybody has those unbelievable stories. That was my, one of my unbelievable stories. And so that was an extraordinary moment that allowed me uh, uh, door op doors open to work with people like Juan Campanella, the brilliant Argentine director, uh, people who would give me television series and things like that. But you had to have the music and you had to show that you were willing to do, like these women are describing, working 12, 15 hours a day, seven days a week or more. 
and, and, and proving yourself. They were not aware that women could compose. We will talk, I'm sure, about that, that that has finally, after maybe two and a half decades, really shifted, I feel, the earth moving in the last few years in a way. But uh, those kind of things uh, allowed me, uh, I hear angels. Um, it's okay. It's at least beautiful. It's a harp. Uh, I'm so sorry. Having this great, these, these constellations, these, these things happen, gave me the opportunity that then I had to run with work incredibly hard and, um, and, and figure out a way either to be bi-coastal or I have been mostly in New York and Italy as of the last, I say, decade. But this is where I'm born. I don't know how whatever else is pertinent, but that's great. I mean, I think it, it sounded like there there were some major doors that opened, but I think you probably created your your own luck, too, <laughs> um, as we all do. I think. Mm -hmm. But Eliza, tell tell us a little bit about how you kind of broke into this. Um, that's going to be hard to follow. That that was so eloquently said. Um, so I guess, I mean, I, I think about my foray into film. And um, as a child, I, I grew up in New York, and I used to go to movies a lot on my own and with friends. There were a lot of repertory houses at that time and great films all the time being shown. And I fell in love with film easily and never in my life dreamed I would ever be able to work in film. Um, but then I went to college and got a job somehow, by chance, um, in sound recording for uh, the public television station in Madison, Wisconsin, um, actually where I think uh, the War at Home, a lot of the people that were at least shot the War at Home or were involved in the editorial uh, were part of this team that was the public TV station there. And I uh, was, they had professional DPs, including one woman. Um, and then they had a bunch of s sound people who were mostly students. And they trained us. And we did like uh, documentary style, mostly. And I learned to run an agra and microphones and all that stuff. Um, it was kind of liberating because once I did it, I realized, oh, this isn't such a mystery. I, mm -hmm. I, I actually can do this. And it kind of freed me to enjoy college, not as a, a way of learning how to make films. I continued to watch films uh, intensely when I was there. But I, I just enjoyed liberal arts while I could. and. Uh, and then when I finished, I, I wrote everyone I knew in New York, and I said, um, I'm graduating from college, and I'm coming back to New York, and if you know anybody in the film business, can you help me? <laughs> uh, and sure enough, one of them did, and I ended up getting an internship at, uh, on a documentary that was editing in the Brill Building on the seventh floor. And I'll never forget, I would go there every day, Graham Weinbrun was the uh, film uh, the editor. And it was a documentary about girl groups of the 60s, which I don't know what ever happened to that movie, but it was great. And um, 
And I would walk onto the seventh floor of the Brill Building, and the Brill Building was this kind of the heart of post-production in New York for decades, really. Um, and and there, as I would walk down the hallways, was everybody who was working at the time on Rumblefish. Um, <laughs> because there was this one documentary, and that's the one I was working on, and then, you know, the huge cruise on the Coppola movie. And, of course, I was hugely impressed by anything Coppola, and, um, and seeing all these guys, and most of them were, like, middle-aged white guys and leaning over big movieolas, and there was usually at least one, sometimes two assistants per editor, it was a very different time. Crews were huge at that time. And um, I was in awe, you know. And I would just walk by quietly and sneak into my little room and do what I was doing on my dock. And through that job, I got a job in production. And I kept recording. I actually bought a Nagra, and I kept recording on documentaries and features, low-budget low features. And um, it was good for me because... When I ended up in sound editorial, I had a kind of what turned out to be somewhat unique angle of coming at it from the having also been on the other side. And, uh, you know, I'd hear all the time the editors complaining about the production sound and, you know, <laughs> dissing the, the, the people doing that job. Because it's so easy when it's, you know, it's after the fact. And I would always feel like, well, yeah, but you know, I know how hard that job is, and it's kind of thankless. And if you're good at it, everybody hates you, and if you're not good at it, you know, they hate you later because <laughs> they have to pay for it. Um, so, well, after many years of kind of going between picture and editorial and sound editorial and picture and and sound recording. I, I ended up feeling like I had to push into one or the other because it just seemed like you couldn't do everything for too long. People didn't take you seriously. So I ended up in sound with people like Skip Leavesay and um, you know great sound editors who made it look easy and seemed to be having a good time doing it. Um, and one thing over years, I just kept plugging away and I was an assistant and then I was uh, and then I became an editor and uh, in low budget and then bigger budget and finally one of the uh, directors I'd worked with in production Amos Poe he was doing a film a low budget film and he asked me if I wanted to be the sound editor the the sound editor like the sound supervisor uh, which I said yes and I did that and then that led to films with Tom DiCillo and uh, Jerry Peroni at the time was one of his editors and then Jerry very kindly and generously offered me uh, shortcuts when she got that job and that was just um, pretty much an unbelievable time because uh, it wasn't just working with Altman which was a privilege but it was working on a film that I considered to be maybe one of the best movies I'd seen in a decade or so, <laughs> maybe longer. And I was like pinching myself, how could that be that I get to work on something that I considered to be, and I'd seen a lot of movies, you know, I was pretty much a snob about movies. But, um, 
and people like Jerry and people who just gave me a break and uh, you know I guess I I work hard and I I love working with directors who care about what they do and bring a lot of collaboration to the job uh, and think about sound and understand that it's a narrative tool that it can be used like any other aspect of the filmmaking process to tell a story or reveal the feelings and moods and um, it's exciting. Um, I've worked with a lot of people I consider to be some of the best in the industry now and in the past. I worked on a film called Ishtar, which is kind of the uh, the Reds too, I would say, yeah. right? It, it went on forever and it had like f six or seven uh, picture editors and I think 20 or so uh, sound editors. Um, so in that job, I was the assistant to Michael Kirchberger, who was the sound supervisor. So you kind of get to wrangle everything at that in that position. And I think that just taught me a lot about how to manage a crew and, ha and that became a useful tool as I became a sound supervisor. Um, through Michael, I actually got uh, to work with him on a film that Lasse Holstrom made a couple years ago called Hundred Foot Journey. And um, shortly, I think right after that film, Michael retired. And so when Lasse was making a film last year, he recommended me and as did Michael Berry, who's the mic was the mixer to be the sound supervisor on his n this next film, which was called uh, A Dog's Purpose. And now he's doing a big Disney film called Nutcracker, which uh, based on this original story that the ballet was based on, and that we're in post-production now probably for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And I'm supervising that. So it's been, you know, things just lead one to the other. and interesting ways and exciting ways. Yeah, My origin story was a little short because I didn't realize it was going to be this. But when, I just need to add yeah. that when he brings up, there's the passion is the most important thing. And that I had been, before I started working in features, I had been cutting documentaries on my own. I, I taught myself. and. I, it, and I wanted to know more, and I also felt if I was going to stay in documentaries, I should be the director, because you, you actually write documentary editors. Um, and the idea of like having a script, and you could follow that, and that you would be adding rhythm and emotion, and something is ethereal, was really exciting, but I loved cutting. I did it for five years without really knowing what I was doing. And it was fantastic. So when I got into features and started working as an assistant and not cutting so much, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I knew that, that, that I was going to get there and I was going to learn everything I could to be able to be, to have that, to be able to express myself through that and to be the best editor I could be. And, um, and it all came from just loving doing it, really loving it. And I still do, and I'm so lucky to still feel that way. So. In addition to the passion that's so clear and so pervasive throughout all of your stories, there's a fearlessness and there's a, a kind of ferocity, I think, of just pure determination to, to 
embrace this and express yourself through this medium. Um, no doubt there were obstacles. And I'm curious if you can tell a story either about one major, major obstacle that you overcame or if there's still, if there's an obstacle that you, or not an obstacle, but maybe one of the greatest challenges that you still encounter in your work and how you move through it. Well, we're all freelancers, and that's an obstacle. That's hard. You have to keep selling yourself, improving yourself, and getting the next job. And so that's so that's about that, relationships. That takes that's relationships, but that doesn't know. You know, it's you have to believe in yourself enough that that rejection isn't because you're terrible, but it doesn't work out for that. And to to persevere, because you really want to do this. You really want that. You want to be able to do this job. So yeah, there's all sorts of, but just the nature of having a freelance job is is a challenge. Sure. And none of us can say, oh, this job, you know, I'll be working for the next. Yeah, it's always the end of a job is the the abyss, and then you're off to trying to get the next one. How do you choose your projects? How do you how do you develop those relationships that you know will be fulfilling on some level? Um, and I mean, I'm opening this yeah, up yeah. to everybody. Some of it, I mean, by working working with people you've worked with before is awesome, you know, is, is great. And sometimes it isn't. Sometimes you've done as much as you can do together, and it's time to move on. Um, I find, I mean, I feel, you know, lucky that I've gotten to pursue the things that I've been interested in, and um, and not, yeah, I've, but. I don't know, sometimes it's the story. The script will really interest me, or the director will, or m mostly it's those things, not usually cast or anything like that. But um, So there's a lot of fluidity in that, and sometimes you yeah. have to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and never underestimate the power of that to make you think, oh, this is an interesting project. Yeah. <laughs> I can find something in there. Yeah, there's so. Oh, <laughs> But so I learned, I had a wonderful mentor, Sam Osteen was uh, oh my, my mentor, and, uh, and he taught me this w very valuable lesson. Just on, uh, he said, don't turn down a job thinking you're going to get a better right. one. Right. And that governed us, because as Chrissy said, we're freelancers, you, you're not really that, don't have that luxury. Of, uh, of, of turning down uh, many jobs. Uh, uh, so that, you, and I do believe that in all the films, there's always something you have to find yeah, because yeah, the passion yeah. that we have right. is the, the, the only way that, 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 the, that, the, that your work is going to get done in a way that you are going right. to be able to present or believe in it. Mm -hmm. And I think that in every film you can find something. You know, sometimes you have stories or films that at first you don't really understand, but uh, that's where the continuity in working together with a, di with a director, mm -hmm. not coming in at the end, like at, as it used to be, the picture would be cut and then <coughs> the sound would come in, then the music would come in, but discovering the film together makes you fall in love with it, mm -hmm. whether with that project, with a director, you have to find something to relate to, otherwise you're not going to be doing a good, a good job. Yeah, right. And in terms of challenges, I think that I found it was a really um, uh, voicing your opinion. Mm -hmm. That was very, uh, uh, it, it could be very intimidating, but yet you have to do it because 
you have to come to that to whatever you present with a certain with a belief and a reason. Right. Confidence. Uh, so knowing first of all the film and that material is crucial. That's the that's the that's the tool that we have. That you that every cut uh, that you that 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 happens has to be owned and uh, so that you can defend right. it if that comes to. Uh, to, I mean, I, was that what you were referring to when, when Nancy, you were saying, I remember the moments in the mix when you were fighting for your choices. I was fighting. I, I, you know, you lose sometimes, sometimes you win, but you, 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 when you do fight, you have to know why. And so the reason why is, why should that piece of, because what is right and what is wrong? I mean, we're all, it all <coughs> depends on our own perceptions. And, uh, and that's why the vision really develops through the work together and, um, and knowing the project in a, in, a, in a deep way. And I will never forget the, w one of the times, and uh, I was thinking about you know, this, what we were talking, going to talk about, and how being a woman in the world of men, and, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's to a disadvantage, sometimes it's to an advantage. And for example, I worked on one of the early films, I worked with David Mamet on his uh, early films, and uh, the first one, House of Cards, was fantastic because it was a dream that the music was structured the way the story was structured so it had a such a structure that you couldn't really bend anything in it it went from a you know from a from a purely classical as written uh, interpretation of a Bach prelude to then slowly being uh, uh, deconstructed via a jazz improvisation so that was it was it, so it followed his line but the second film the homicide, suddenly he was faced with a score that was actually working as a score. And uh, he started being afraid of it because he loves words so much. So he started taking out music. And I would get very, very upset. And that's, an, uh, that's one Good thing for that, you. you know, emotions are something that are, <laughs> that are very, very, you know, we have to learn how to, uh, how to govern them. That's one part that's not easy for us. And, uh, but I was so, it, would, I, I was, it was early on in my career, I would get very um, uh, emotional about a music cue, drop music cue. So, and uh, and uh, sometimes in tears. So one morning, I came in, and uh, they told, I was told that that night they dropped another music cue. But then the door opens, David Mamet comes in, and he's holding his hands in the back, and he comes to me, and he presents me a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> and he said, from now on, every music cue that I drop, I'm going to bring you a bouquet of flowers. So <laughs> that's how he eased uh, this very, very <laughs> difficult situation. But <laughs> Because in the end, the director wins, you know. Inside, yeah. It's there. It, you have to. I mean, you can you can discuss and um, say your opinion, but uh, you know, it, you you have to um, respect mm -hmm. that the vision that uh, you know that, that and try to understand. Do you know? But I learned watching you do your thing. Michael Berry and I worked, Michael Berry mixed a, a, a film that I worked on very early. It was one of the first ones that I was able to <coughs> push me out of the mask uh -huh. for. Uh, it was called The Bee Season, and it was two directors, and uh, we were in the final mix, and um, they, they, they would get very focused on certain moments, but it was hard for them sometimes to keep the thread from a distance. And 
we would go into a queue and he would have he would have us un unwinding things unwinding 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 until there was nothing but ragged threads left and we took it upstairs uh, to I don't know one of the floors to look at it on the big stage and we watched the first three reels and it was a disaster and, and <coughs> I mean I knew why I think Michael knew why but you know the, and and the directors were were trying to they were very good friends with the composer and they the composer was ready to go back into the studio and start rewriting and start and I I said wait 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 wait, wait. Let's, the composer needs to have the experience we just had. Mm. And, and I kind of knew what was going to happen, but, and it was a big risk. I mean, I, I put myself right in the middle, and the composer came with his engineer, and he watched the first three reels of the movie, what was left of the score. It was awful. Awful. I feel him. for him. It was awful, <laughs> and I and I and I sort of prepared him, but you can't. Right. And um, and I th he he knew what I was trying to do. And it allowed him to have the conversation with the directors that he needed to have. They did not understand how much they had unwound the score. Mm -hmm. And I remember Michael. That night, I went back to the cutting room and I had I I, I prepared the sessions. This is we weren't in mag, thank God. Uh, I prepared the sessions so that we would very easily be able to go from what we had mixed to the way that the composer had intended it. And we AB mm. almost every piece of music in the first three reels, and that was the only way they could understand how things were unwound. Mm. And it was really and, and amazing. We, and we put everything back, and we played it together, and it all hung together, and it worked, and it, it ended up okay. But I mean, to sort of the point of everything here, I I had to figure out how to fight, but in a way that people could hear me, yeah. and that it w wasn't about me or my work. It was about the film, which mm -hmm. is what you always taught me, mm -hmm. and it was about the score. <coughs> serving the film, it's it's one thing to it's one thing to drop a cue, as we know, but it's another thing to 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 put it in a place where you're not allowing it to do what you need it to do for the film. Yes, can I? When yes. you're done, I really so, want to jump in but, because so that's, that's great. That's just what you're an saying. example of figuring out like how to deal with the obstacles in a way. That you can keep the dialogue open and keep the process moving forward, and keep your creativity alive. Uh, can I just jump in yeah. after that? Because I, first of all, thank goodness for people with your sensitivity and wisdom. Um, but just because I believe that there must be filmmakers in the room, it also is so important for filmmakers to really do as much homework and studying of what music and all these elements, the richness of sound, all the different elements that we bring to the table to make the film. You know, sometimes I know from my department, it's not a department, from my art form, uh, a lot of times, having worked with over 100 different directors, you experience very, very different levels of expertise 
first-time filmmakers may or may not be brilliant. They may have heard every soundtrack that ever existed, or they really haven't focused on it. And after all these scores that I've done, most recently I had this catastrophic experience without a Nancy Allen or Susanna Perch. So um, I have a score out there that I almost actually for the first time in my entire career didn't want to put my name on because now people ask for stems and they want to take your scores apart thinking that, well, they know better. And that may be true, but very, mel very well may not be true. And I would just encourage anyone you know and you to study as, as much as you can by listening to the greats and understanding the purpose of all the elements that we bring to the table to help create the multi-dimensionality that is a, a complete film. So things like that don't happen. Um, well, if it could have, that, that music could be included earlier, and that's a very hard thing to do, but you know, those decisions are made by editors and by directors right there on the stage, mm. you know, not having been able to see it and that. get used to that, and that's really too bad. You know, we need to sort of, um, get used to your music on exactly. that piece, that thing that yeah. we're looking at after having lived with something else. And, you know, it's very hard to, Absolutely. oh my God, what the hell is that? <laughs> right, which is why I always thought, isn't it great that unless you have geniuses making a temp tra uh, track, which usually might not be the yeah. case, a lot of people will take every Thomas Newman, now every oh, yeah. Desplat piece of music, all the same, frickin' music over right. and over as temp, and okay, Wendy or whoever's coming to score, you know, this is what we had. You as an editor have, been, have fallen in love and cut frame by frame so that the rhythm works together. Well, I talk about taking out the temp track, excuse yeah, me, absolutely. Yeah, of course. and absolutely. either at least use my music so that you're closer right. to the sensibility of the closer you're using, right. or just tabla rasa, give yourself a break. Mm -hmm. First of all, you'll, you'll depend on a great editor to really build the story. My first greatest experience was with Juan Campanella on a terribly named brilliant film called The Boy Who Cried Bit, uh, The Boy Who Cried Bitch which is an amazing film, brilliant. I mean, I called him Orson Welles because the guy is amazing. I was invited to screen in a room like this without any music. Mm. Right. I loved the cut, yeah. and I was in heaven, and I went on to write one of the best scores I've ever written because I wasn't guided to write like somebody else or even copy myself. Who wants to copy yourself? Why don't you just yeah. do a different job then? So think about that as a potential and <coughs> Don't cut to music. Yes, yes. Exactly, exactly, very important. The other thing I had to say, I know there are only, and each of us probably have these percentages. We are women up here, which is amazing. Because uh, when I started a long time ago, 30 years or 25 years ago, I didn't even know any other women writing music for a film. And now there's all of 1.8% of women <laughs> we've really come up in the world. All this to say that <coughs> it was really hard. There were obstacles, Sisyphusian? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, obstacles. Every, everything you would go to, you were the only woman in the room. You always felt like 
a, in a way an outcast, like you weren't supposed to be there. Uh, it was really hard and you always had to prove yourself in, in a huge way. You had to lift yourself up off the floor after those events where you were the only one, woman in the room. And this has only very recently felt like it's changing. There's finally a group called Ameri Alliance for Women, Women Composers, composers um, that started three years ago in Sundance. Um, and I didn't know there's all these sisters out there. And I started, I thought the only one was, of course, anyway, uh, uh, Shirley Walker or, or, or um, Rachel Portman. But the point is that um, I think that I am glad to say, as I see a scene of younger faces, that that I think that there's a much better, uh, there's a better story. I want to say much better. I think there's a better opportunity for you to be seen as a complete human composer now. And I'm hoping the same for these other imperatives, these uh, departments. Just in the name of time, I want to open it up to questions uh, from the audience. Are there any questions for these amazing women, for people that are from out there? Yeah. From Ben <laughs> Baker. Um, let me just run this up to you just so we can get this on. Our, uh... Uh, just a general question for everyone. Who is working at the moment that you would like to still work with, uh, a woman in any of your fields that you'd still like to to work with, who that we might not be aware of at the moment. I'm oh, sorry. You mean as a what was director? Or as an did you say a, what woman would it's we like to It's an open question, work? really. But would other women um, working either in your fields or as directors that you would hope to work with, or that you had wished you'd worked with? Uh, just a just really an open question, just to uh, kind of broaden it out a little. I'm, s I'm still not sure if you said, are there women people, are, are there yes. women that we want to work with or anybody other, in the other field women, we want to work with? Other women that okay. you would want to work with. I would like to work with Rebecca Miller. I find oh, yeah. her very, yeah, very so would interesting I. And, uh, <laughs> voice and uh, she lives in New York now and I think that she is uh, really a wonderful voice. I would love to have a chance. I've worked with uh, Julie Tamer and that was really a great experience. I would totally work with her again. Nancy, actually, you and I worked on that one of her films together. Um, and I was thinking about that coming over here, that there are very few women directors that I've had the opportunity to work with. The only other one of note was Cindy Sherman, <laughs> who did a film uh, for um, killer films about 15, 20 years ago. And that was pretty, pretty wild. Uh, it was a great experience. Um, but there, I haven't had enough women directors to work with. I don't know if you guys feel that way. There haven't been yeah. enough. I had a run. I had Tina Rathborn. I had Mira, Mira Nair, um, documentary, Maggie, Maggie. Maggie Greenwald. It's been wonderful working with women directors. I, I'd like to work with Reed Morano. I think she's got a, some interesting projects coming up. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to... Uh, there are, there are more. There are, cer there are certainly a lot in the film school, in the Fierstein Film School where I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. It's about 50% women there. That's I great. just had a chance to, I, I mentioned Mudbound earlier. Oh, yeah, Dee Reese. Dee Reese is mm, yeah. a dream to work with her. And her, her composer, Tamar Khali, to, uh, uh, um, 
who also composed Pariah, this was the first sort of, it was the first film score that she did, like a real narrative. Man, that was so exciting. It was, it was really exciting. I mean, I understand what you're talking about, working with composers. The thing about Tamar that was, so Tamar got the, the concept of underscore, like immediately. It was, it was amazing to watch that. It was it, so that I, I think that was a really really exciting thing. Okay, so hear it. yeah, I, and I'd like to I'd like very much and I'm gonna I, I hope I'm gonna say this Ava DuVernay, mm -hmm. Selma and Thirteen. Mm -hmm. I thought I feel like she has a really mm -hmm. strong vision and is a wonderful, wonderful yeah. uh, mm -hmm. n n you know storyteller. Another question right here. Hi. Um, I'm Gabby, I'm from Harbor Picture Company. I'm the Gabriella. senior producer there for sound. Um, so uh, something that really interests me is all of you are artists up here and you're all individually working on this little por uh, a portion of the film led by a director. When you have finished your pass and let's say you are um, at odds, and I think Susanna you touched up on this a little bit earlier, how do you deal with the postpartum? Especially, not only, not only like, Let's you know. Let's say it was a beautiful project. How do you deal with that postpartum? You know, you had such a beautiful run, but what about the the ones that you know you're not so happy with how it turned out because the director went in a different way or something happened that you weren't exactly. So how do you deal with that and knowing that your art is out there and being perceived by different audiences? I have probably the longest. You know, I stay on the longest. Um, it's I. It took me years to deal with the postpartum. I would feel bereft when at the last day of the mix. Like, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I know, my life was over. Um, don't tell my kids and my husband that, but um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was my family, it was everything. It was where all my, my brain cells went to for a long time. I've gotten used to it. <laughs> um, now I know it's gonna happen. And I'm going to feel that way. So, and then I'll go have another film, and I'll go through it again. But um, you know, you fall in love. I've never let. It's only weeks afterwards that I might have thought, oh, you know, that film wasn't very good. I don't know what I was <laughs> because the up to the last moment of mixing yes. it, I am in love with of it, course. and I believe in it, and I think everybody who was a part of it was a genius and I'm so glad I felt feel that way about it you know it's not alienated labor which is very very nice but so there is that falling out of love and then adjusting to the fact that um, it goes on and you're it's grown up and doesn't need you anymore <laughs> <laughs> but it's very emotional I could relate to that I, uh, even though I'm on for maybe two or three months, which is not as long in any way. There's such an intensity where you are living the film. In my case, I unfortunately didn't even go to my parents' uh, moving party because I was on a Nick Gomez film, uh, New Jersey Drive, and I thought we were gonna end racism. So I didn't leave the studio for three months because I was positive this was gonna change the world. And, um, and then, you know, things happen in the mix. They took out sounds, you know, <laughs> sorry, that I made because, you know, sometimes it conflicts with the sound mixer, et cetera, whatever. It still came out great. And it's an important film for what it is. But the thing is, 
Um, what I wanted to share is that I think that we might not have mentioned, for me, having just come off of four straight films back to back, I feel like I forget about balance and uh, between life, remembering that there's an, there's that other life, you know, with our families and and going to a museum huh, or anything like real out there outside of the film, and so that if you don't keep a little place in your world for some kind of balance, also you can hurt yourself physically by sitting in a chair. 90 hours a week like a lot of us do. Um, I think that that's something that helps you understand when the end of the film comes. You're not like shrieking to a halt and coming into a crazy other planet like I feel right now. I'm a bad example still of not being able to balance because I'm too passionate. And maybe there's a better balance that I would wish for all of I you. absolutely agree. That's exactly how I think. So. I don't know if I, I can't teach myself to right. do it any different. I wish I could. But I definitely would don't want people to follow that in my footsteps. It's right. that it's too because it's a freelance thing, because we have this passion for it. And it's a project, you know, it will get done when you finish doing your work. You feel like oh, if I just do it a little bit more, I'll yeah. get there, you know. And there's the um, Oh, yeah. No, no, no. But it's... It As a post-supervisor, I'm never done. I'm <laughs> constantly being asked for things for international delivery or... Uh, right? We, 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 uh, <laughs> we, we, we can work for uh, months or years after the last paycheck. <laughs> That's true. Um, so uh, we get to live with the film, and we do get to enjoy it, you know, in that way. We, I mean, we do. We don't. We have a more gradual postpartum. <laughs> right. Are there any? Do we have any other questions from the audience? One more. Yes. You. I'm coming up. More of a statement than a question, but thank you all for t speaking tonight. I loved it, and I've known almost all of you except Wendy for decades and never knew all your stories. And it was fascinating <laughs> to hear that. And it really, really touched me. And I hope you can share that. Maybe there's a way to podcast everyone's How I Got Started story somehow, especially for w women and young women. We're going to podcast this evening. So. No, I know. But maybe on an ongoing basis. You know, tell your story. <laughs> How'd you get started? I don't know. Something. Because I, I, I do mentoring. And I, I'm trying to get kids to learn how to. Uh, yeah. Often the kids don't know how what the jobs are that exist. And uh, yeah, that's what yeah. all of you talked about. You didn't know these jobs existed. You just sort of found a pathway. And a lot of kids don't have that. So thank you very much and appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for being here tonight. And thank you all for coming. There's going to be a reception right outside. So you're all welcome to have some wine and food and beer. Thank you so much. Um,